The Exodus is structured, I noted this last Sunday night, it is structured by three big events. God uh, bringing Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. That includes the preparation of Moses until God brings his people through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And then the second big event is where we're at presently. That is God revealing himself at Mount Sinai. God entering into the Mosaic Covenant at the foot of the mountain giving his law to Moses, the old covenant mediator, the typical redeemer. And then the third redemptive historical event that structures the book of Exodus is the tabernacle. God is going to give all these prescriptions about tabernacle worship and about building and erecting that place of worship where he is going to come and dwell with his people. And we saw last Sunday night, Uh, that Moses has brought Israel to the foot of the mountain. It was that smoking, burning, fiery mountain. And God was preparing the people to worship him. And yet there was something terrible about the foot of Sinai. We saw the the fear and the dread, the the stay-awayness of Sinai. That's, That's really the focus of chapter 19. And I may have noted last Sunday night that in one sense... Chapter 19 is the preface to chapter 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And yet, in another sense, the preface, as we're going to see tonight, is found there in verses 1 and 2 before the Lord does give Moses the Ten Commandments. Uh, It is my hope that we will be able to look at each of the Ten Commandments in sequence every Sunday night, starting tonight. And this morning or this evening, I want us to focus on Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. I want us to look at the preface to the Ten Commandments, and then I want us to consider the first of those commandments. Now, here in Exodus 20, verse 1, we read, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. When I was 24 years old, I went on a trip with a group of believers from a PCA church in Greenville to France. And one of the highlights of that trip was going to Paris and walking around all the districts and eating all the good food. And toward the end of that trip, we ended up outside the Notre Dame, and I'll never forget walking inside the Notre Dame and seeing for the first time in my life people bowing down, worshiping idols. I had seen on television people worshiping idols, but I had never seen firsthand people prostrate before images and candles and things that are not gods. That that is idolatry. That That is worshiping created things. And, and it struck me as I stood there when people marvel at the great uh, Roman Catholic cathedrals, do they not know that so much of what goes on in there is idolatry? And I also wonder if we understand that of all the sins that God hates the most, Scripture makes it clear that idolatry is the worst of all sins because every other sin is bound up in it And every other sin is tantamount to it. Um, And I wonder, I wonder if we are, if we are cognizant 
that our hearts, as John Calvin said, are idol-making factories. Our hearts are idol-making factories. Every one of us is an idol worshiper. We may not do it like those in the Notre Dame. We may not do it like those in the Old Covenant when they worship those wooden idols that they carve for themselves, gods of silver and gold, gods of stone, but we do it in very sophisticated ways. And so it's important as we come to the giving of the Ten Commandments, and we're going to look at this first commandment this morning or this evening, that we acknowledge that we acknowledge that um, God is entering into this covenant relationship with his people, even as he has entered into a covenant relationship with us, because the end goal that God has of entering into a covenant relationship with his people is that his people would know him and love him and give him the worship and glory that is due to him. God does everything that he does in creation and redemption so that we would know him and love him and give him the worship and glory that is due to him. Now, I want us to consider three things as we look at the first of the Ten Commandments in the preface. I want us to consider first the preface to these commandments. Then I want us to consider the purpose of these commandments. And then I want us to consider the principal commandment, the preface, the purpose, and the principal commandment. Well, notice now that Israel is at the mountain and God is going to give his word to them. Moses now writes in chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the covenant Lord, your God, You shall ha- who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, before God gives the moral law, before he gives Israel the Ten Commandments, he prefaces it with the words, I am Yahweh Elohim, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now that is supremely important. Because the Lord, as we saw last Sunday, is reminding Israel that my name and my attributes and my character that are bound up with my name, I am making known to you because I am the one who has already delivered you. I am the one who redeemed you. Before God ever gives Israel the law, He gives them a declaration of his name, and he gives them a statement about what he has done for them. And he doesn't just say, I am Yahweh, God. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. Now that's amazing, because the Lord is telling Israel, I have bound myself to you so that so that you belong to me and I belong to you. Think about that. This is like a marriage relationship. By the way, when the Bible wants to liken God's covenant dealings with his people to anything, God likens it to marriage. When Hosea, remember, is told to take Gomer and um, to buy her back, and then she would leave him and go to other lovers, and he would buy her back, and the Lord tells Israel, this is what I am to you. You are like this unfaithful wife, and I am like the husband that will buy you back and take you back to myself. And so the Lord is setting out at the outset, not just the obligations that he has for his people, not just how he wants them to live, but who he is. Think about that. The Ten Commandments are going to be a declaration of his character, but bound up in his name and the revelation of who he is, is that he has bound himself to us. That's amazing. 
one of the greatest verses in the New Testament, in my opinion. And it was one that overwhelmed me after I had been converted out of so much depravity. And it's one that sometimes still overwhelms me. Is in Galatians where, where Paul says, God is not ashamed to be called our God. Think about that. He is not ashamed to be called our God. If, if anyone should be ashamed to be uh, identified with us, it's the infinitely holy and righteous God. He should be ashamed to be identified with a filthy sinner like me or you. And yet he says he's not ashamed. And he comes graciously. And everything about the preface to the Ten Commandments is dripping with the redemptive grace of God. God reminds them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now we have talked at length about how the Exodus was a type of the redemption that we have in Christ. And so what God is essentially saying to Israel, though though he's mentioning the typical redemption, he is saying, and he's saying to us, I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you from your bondage to sin and Satan and death. I have redeemed you from your enemies. I have come and graciously done for you what no one else could. I have liberated you. Um, By the way, in the gospel, I was just teaching a group of Chinese uh, pastors and believers online this past week and talking to them about um, the blessings of the liberty we have in Christ and thinking, wow, how much more meaningful that must be to people in communist countries, in totalitarian countries, in fascist countries. How much, how much more meaningful that is when we live in a land where we're so free, we take this for granted. We totally take for granted that God has set us free. Um, I'd encourage you, by the way, to read the chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith about the liberty that we have and liberty of conscience and all the things that God has set us free from. His wrath, his curse, the judgment to come, Satan, the bondage of our sin, the fear of death, and on and on and on. And God is saying to Israel, look, I am the covenant Lord who has brought you out of your bondage and I've wed myself to you. Now, that is so important. That is so important. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards says this. He says about this preface, to have any being for a God and in the sense of Holy Scripture, this God is not only to have such a being as an object of reverence and observation, But as an object of trust, as a defense and savior, the author of blessing and happiness. That's a really awesome statement. Let me just read that again, and I'll paraphrase it. To have a God, according to scripture, isn't just to have one that requires you to do certain things and holds those requirements over you. It is to have the source. It is to have... An object of trust, a defense, and a savior, the author of blessing and happiness. That's what the Lord is saying to Israel in this preface. I am out for your good. I want good for you. I want blessing for you. I want you to know freedom and liberty. I want you to know joy. Um, When the Lord speaks to himself 
and brings, uh, speaks to Israel uh, in Jeremiah, and he brings an indictment against Israel through Jeremiah in chapter 2, and you know this verse so well. He says, my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewned out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And what the Lord is saying is, look, I am a fountain of blessing, as Edward said, and I want to be a fountain of blessing for you. That's going to mean that if we trust the Lord and we are, we are redeemed by him and we are trusting the Lord Jesus and we are desirous of obeying the Lord, that, that even the commandments he gives us are good for us. They are meant to bring us joy. You know, I, I hardly uh, doubt that anyone who is living in an adulterous relationship has any real joy in their heart. I don't care how much they say they're happy. Because when we're living in sin, we can't have true joy. God's commandments are meant to produce joy in the life of believers. As I said last Sunday night, they are the boundary markers of our sanctification. They are the sphere in which our Christian life. We don't, we don't try to keep them to gain God's favor. That's why the preface is so important. The Lord doesn't come and say, here, keep this and things will go well for you. He says, I've already redeemed you now. Here's what I'm like. Here's how I want you to live. This is what's good for you. Um, I want us to consider then here the purpose. We, we've seen some of that in the preface, but I want us to consider the purpose of God's commandments. Um, if you ask me, why did God give the law and how is it useful to someone? I would ask you, well, that depends. Are they regenerate, born again, or are they unregenerate? So if you ask me why God gave the law and what purpose the Ten Commandments especially serve, in someone's life, I would want to know from you first, what spiritual condition are they in? Are they still dead in sins and trespasses, or have they been raised to newness of life? Because, um, and our Reformed Confessions set this out so wonderfully, um, there, are, there are several uses of the law. We talk of three uses of the law. The first use of the law is a schoolmaster. Paul will talk about this in Galatians. He'll say that, that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that it was meant to show us our sinfulness. Paul will say, why did God give the law? To make sin exceedingly sinful, to make us see our need for the Savior. Um, you might think of the, the little nun in the uh, parochial school, and she used to come around and pop the children's hands with the ruler. That was a very common thing. The law is meant to do that. It's meant to show us our sinfulness. And so, especially if a man or woman, a boy or girl, are not born again, the law is meant to come crashing down on them in order to show them their need for the Savior. Um, I'll read this to you. Larger Catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism 96. The moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences, to flee from the wrath to come, and to drive them to Christ, or upon continuance in the estate of sin to leave them un inexcusable and under the curse thereof. So there is a use of the law that is not a joyous use, we could say. It is a painful use. God intends for us to have our consciences pricked 
by his commandments. If, if, if you came to the Ten Commandments, unregenerate, regenerate, it doesn't matter. And you said, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. Something is horribly wrong. Especially if you understand the real nature of the commandments, um, the depth of the commandments, that, that we, we are not meant to say, like that lawyer that came to Jesus, I've kept all those from my youth. But, but he hadn't, had he? Because he didn't love his neighbor. He loved money. He didn't love his neighbor. He was covetous. He was greedy. And, and Paul is going to tell us in Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is idolatry. That means all the Ten Commandments are bound up together. James will tell us if we're guilty of breaking one, we've broken all of it. Uh, these, these new glass door, doors are actually somewhat helpful um, the best way to think of the Ten Commandments is to think of them as a complete, unbroken pane of glass. And if a ball goes through it, the whole thing is broken. Instead of thinking, well, I'm good on these and I'm not good on these, they're all, they are all meant to show us our sinfulness. And that's a good thing. That's even true for believers. The Westminster Divines will go on and ask what use the law has for regenerate people. And listen to this. They say, um, they say it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it, enduring the curse in their place for their good, and to provoke them to more thankfulness. So even for the Christian, the law still says to me, man, I needed Christ to keep this for me. I have not kept this, and if this is the standard of judgment on Judgment Day, and it will be, I am undone, because I have not kept God's commandments. Now, there is that first use of it being uh, a schoolmaster, the pedagogical use of the law. There is also a restraining use in which God uses this in society. And, and you see this even in Old Covenant Israel when he gave them civil laws that were only for that time for Israel in the Old Covenant. They're not for today, except for that general principle in them. But, but we see that that is meant to restrain evil in society because we live in such a depraved world. We need the restraint of God's law in society. And then the third use is what uh, John Calvin calls the rule of life. That, that the Ten Commandments do become for us, and I'm coming back to this, they become for us a, an instructor. They, they tell us what is pleasing to the Lord. They tell me what I should be seeking to avoid. They tell me what is good. They tell me what is evil. And they essentially say to believers, because God has redeemed you, and out of gratitude for the redemption he's given you, why would you not want to run the course of his commandments? Why would you not want to be faithful to your spouse? Why would you not want to honor your father and your mother? Why would you not want to set aside the Lord's day? Why would you not want to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped? Why would you not want to, to avoid greed and covetousness? Why would you not want to speak evil of your neighbor? Um, while we are painfully aware of how miserably short we fall, there is a sense in which any true believer delights in the law of God. Um, 
Again, we're not justified by it, and if you're in Christ, you're not condemned by it. And, and that means, because we're not justified or condemned by it, we don't set it aside, we delight in it. We say, this is good and right because it comes from the very holy, pure, and righteous heart of God himself. Um, left to ourselves, we would make up laws that suit our sinfulness. We see that, don't we, in the world around us. Some people say, well, you know, the laws that I, I hold to are laws that society dictates. Well, what if society says gassing Jews is good? Is that good? What if society says slaughtering babies is good? Is that good? What if society says legislating sexual immorality is good? Is that good? And, and you see there's a contrast. Only an infinitely holy being would give us commandments like we find in the law of God. He gives us commandments that bind us to him. He gives us commandments that bind us to our neighbor. Now, I just want to say this as a brief aside. Um, The Apostle Paul is also very clear that it's love that fulfills the commandments. Love to God, love to neighbor. That if the Lord gives me a heart that really loves him, I'm going to want to worship him as he has commanded me. I'm going to want to worship him and only him. I'm going to want to worship him the way he wants to be worshipped. I'm going to want to honor and respect and revere his name from my heart. I'm going to want to set his day apart. And if the Lord has given me a heart that has been renewed in the love of Christ... I'm going to want to love my neighbor. I'm not going to want to steal from my neighbor. I'm not going to want to hate my neighbor in my heart. I'm going to want to bless my neighbor and do good and build he or she up. And so the purpose of the law is not for you to get working so you can please God. The purpose of the law is to teach us how to live in loving relationship with God and with one another. Um, We really see this, don't we, in the Lord Jesus. He is the embodiment. He is the walking love of God, and he always kept God's law perfectly, sinlessly. He, he's the only one who has ever loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. As a man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, loved his Father with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. And, and so he shows us, doesn't he? how God's law is to be wielded in our lives. Um, I want us to just focus, though, especially here and finally, on the principal commandment. Now, I hesitated to, to title this point the principal commandment, and then I thought, well, no, Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But, but really, the first commandment is the principal commandment. I've already noted that all the other commandments are bound up in it. And the Apostle Paul will take the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, and he will say covetousness is idolatry. So he will bring it full circle back. And as I've already noted, every other commandment, if, 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 uh, I, if I commit adultery, if I, um, if I dishonor those that God has put in authority over me sinfully, I am not worshiping the Lord my God. 
I am putting myself as a God in front of him. And so it is right that the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. Now, clearly there is a sense in which the Lord is speaking directly to Israel, who he has just brought out of bondage in Egypt. And we will find out later in the Old Testament that while they were in Egypt, they learned how to worship all the gods of Egypt. And so when the Lord brings Israel to the mountain to worship him and he reveals himself as the God who has redeemed them, and he says to them, you shall have no other gods before me, he is warning them of what their propensity is going to be. Their propensity is going to put other gods before him. And how do we know that? Because while Moses is up on the mountain and he is delaying right after the Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me, Aaron is at the base of the mountain, frustrated with the people, making a golden calf for them with the goods that God gave them when he redeemed them. They don't even leave the mountain before they make an idol and say, this is Jehovah who brought us out of Egypt. So quickly, so quickly do we see. Notice also, notice this. um, At the very end, at the very end, um, excuse me, I'm actually off on that. Um, yes, notice verse 23, chapter 20, 20, verse 23. After giving the Ten Commandments, the Lord talks about setting up altars that they're going to have to sacrifice on because he knows that they're, gonna, they're going to break his commandments. They're going to need an atoning sacrifice. And so he gives them these laws about the altars. And notice what he says in verse 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. So he knows that there's going to be an inclination for the people to put other gods there right as it were in front of him. I think when he says beside me, he doesn't mean in my place. He means in my presence. The Hebrew carries the idea of before my face. I see all things. I, I see into the depths of your heart. And, and, and God is a jealous God. He's going to say that in one of the commandments. He is a jealous God, drawing off that marriage imagery again. Now, why, why, is, it not, why is it not sinful for the Lord to say, you shall put no other gods, you shall have no other gods before me? Because Because if I said to you tonight, you know what, I want your undivided attention every second of every day of your life, that would be sin. If if I if I said to my wife, I want you to do everything I say whenever I say it and and to live every second of your life for me, that would be sin because she is called to worship the Lord. God is unique. God is infinite. In glory, if God didn't say, you shall have no other gods before me, if the living God, the triune God, was okay with you worshiping idols, that would be sin. That would be evil. Um, God will say in his word, I will not give my glory to another. If he were to give his glory to another, he would un-God himself. Um, by the way, this is also this is also why... It's not wrong for God to kill, but it's wrong for us to murder. Um, There are eight billion of us. We're made in his image. He is the giver of life 
and the one who takes life. So the uniqueness of God's character makes it not only right, but it demands that he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, I want us to consider as we look at this commandment because, and I want to say this again tonight just briefly, I, I could be totally wrong, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you do not have some Buddha shrine in your house that you're bowing down to and worshiping. I'm going to guess that most of you do not, do not go home and read the Quran um, worshipfully and, and pray to, to uh, a false god named Allah. I'm just going to go ahead and guess that you don't do that. I hope you don't. Um, if you read the Quran, I hope it's to, to contradict the Quran with the truth of Scripture. But, but um, we, again, we are, we are just as idolatrous as Israel. We have the same hearts. We have the same nature. We have the same propensities. And, and Eric Alexander has said this. We are actually more sophisticated with our idols than they were with theirs. You know, there is a, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a more base form of idolatry and there's a more sophisticated form of idolatry. The, the base form would be in, in ancient days, men and, and women worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. They worshiped things God had created. That was, that was a more base form. They... they worshipped visible things that God had made. The, the more sophisticated form came when they, they adopted for themselves foreign gods and, and they made for themselves visible manifestations of whatever God that was and they gave their worship and their strength and their money to whatever object they carved for themselves. That was more sophisticated. The most sophisticated form of idolatry is what we do. It is that convincing ourselves that we are not worshiping ourselves, our pleasures, our desires, um, our statuses, um, power, influence, provisions. Um, when, when John will talk about this in 1 John, he will, he will say those things are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Um, those are our idols. Um, God gives us good things to enjoy. It's not wrong to have things. But when, when money and when um, possessions grip our heart, that's idolatry. God gives us things to enjoy by way of pleasure. But when they take a front seat to our life and, and we are looking to them to meet all our needs, that is idolatry. I know this too painfully well in my own soul. That is idolatry. Um, listen to this. J.I. Packer helpfully writes this. He says, for us, there are still great gods, sex, shekels, and stomach, the unholy trinity constituting one God and the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position, whose worship it is described in 1 John 2.16 as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, eyes, and the pride of life. Football, the firm, Freemasonry, and the family are also gods for some. And indeed, the list of other gods is endless. For anything that allows anyone to run his life, for anyone that anyone allows, for anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god, and the claimants for his prerogative are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed 
Munster. Don't miss this. I don't want us going home feeling good that we don't worship other gods because we all worship other gods. And none of us have loved the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And none of us have loved our neighbor as ourself. And so we have necessarily put other gods before God. You know, when I am not, when I am not seeking to do the multitude of tasks that God has given me every day to his glory, then I, am, I, I have slid into idolatry. I am saying I'm doing this because I want more possessions or I want more status or I want more recognition or I want more power or influence or whatever. So, so if, if our motive is not worshiping God in our work, then we're putting other gods before him. Um, now, I, I, I almost don't want to preach through the Ten Commandments because I know it's going to be really painful for me and for you probably. But here's the good news. As we read on in Scripture, we find that none of us, not one person has ever kept God's commandments perfectly except the God who came in the flesh. And I want you to think about this tonight. Christ, who is Yahweh, your God, and Yahweh, my God. And by the way, we can call the triune God our God because of Christ. As we heard this morning, God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. He is our Father because Christ has redeemed us, because he is the eternal Son. And Christ so kept the law of God that when he was tempted in the wilderness, he said to the evil one, you shall worship and serve the Lord and him only shall you serve. And when he hung on the cross, and this is remarkable, if there was ever a time for the Lord Jesus to buckle under the pressures of what was falling on him and, and to, to give in to a temptation to sinfully curse God and, and turn away from God, it would have been when he was nailed to the cross. And yet in the middle of his sufferings on the cross for your idolatry and for my idolatry, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about that. In the middle of Jesus's sufferings for us, in, in the hour of his suffering on the cross, he trusted, he trusted and he cried out, and he worshipped. Jesus was worshipping according to his human nature. He prays in that first prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he cries out in that last prayer, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Jesus was resisting the temptation to put another God before God, when he hung on the cross for all the times we have put other gods before God. Now, here's the other beautiful thing. If you're like me, and I felt massively condemned preparing this message, but what it did was it drove me to my knees and on my face to the Lord in prayer to say, Lord, have mercy on me for putting other gods before you. Have mercy on me for treating myself as if I am God. Have mercy on me for making all of these good things into ultimate things 
and so abusing those things, and so falling into idolatry. So we go to him, we confess that, we cry out to him, we plead the merits of Christ, and then here's the glorious thing. God refocuses us on the Lord Jesus, and here's the solution to not putting other gods before God. Keeping the eyes of your heart fixed on Jesus is the solution. You know how I know this? Because John, in 1 John, He writes this magnificent first letter, and it's really all about the truth of the two natures of Jesus, that he is God and that he is man in one person, that he propitiated for our sins, that he really and truly came. John will say in that book, I write these things so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. And and it's this magnificent defense of the the deity and the humanity of Jesus, and it's this magnificent call to abide in him and to run the course of his commandments. And and the danger that John is facing is that people will will not keep their eyes fixed on Christ. They will not abide in the Son. They will allow themselves to be moved away from him. And so at the very end of the book, it doesn't even seem to fit It doesn't even seem to fit anything John has said. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because he realizes when we're moved away from Christ, we will always put other gods before God. But when we abide in Christ, we will abide in God. And we will not want to put other gods before him. Isn't that amazing? When when our souls are so fixated on Jesus, that we are delighting in him, that we are singing his praises, that we are rejoicing at his goodness, that we are living our days in thankfulness. That, 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 is, that is what keeps us from idolatry. I want to say this last thing tonight. Um, Paul will say in Romans 1 that the great problem of idolatry is that we like to worship the creature rather than the creator. That's what all, all mankind's doing. And, and I've always marveled at this. And, and I had some Chinese pastors ask me this week, um, they said, when we worship Jesus, are we just worshiping his deity? And I said, well, we're worshiping Jesus, and he's God and man, and you can't separate the two natures. He is fully God and fully man, inseparable natures, but we worship the person of Christ. When he received worship from his disciples after his resurrection, the man, Christ Jesus, received that worship because they knew they were worshiping God in the flesh. And here's what I think. I think God, at least in part, knows that our propensity is to worship created things, so he creates for himself a human nature. He unites it to the divine. That that humanity is destroyed on the cross because all of our sin is put on it. He rises victorious, and God now says, worship the God-man. Worship the God-man. One old writer, Adolphe Monat, a French pastor of the 19th century, said, I think of Christ so much, I pray to him so much, I call on him so much, I worship him so much, that, that if he were not God, and God in the highest sense of that term, it would be idolatry. But because he is... It is the solution to our idolatry. I hope that as you take inventory of your life, where you're at, your heart, the ways that we do put other gods before God, 
that you will go to him, that you will fall down before him, that you will cry out for his forgiveness, that you will ask him to, to fix your eyes on Christ, and that you will ask him to help you not to put other gods before him, that, that, that you will put him before everything that you do, all of your relationships, your work, every aspect of your life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, your law is very deep and it is very searching. Your commandments are great. And Lord, we do love you and we are thankful that you have said to us, I am the Lord, your God. We are thankful, Lord, that you have redeemed us. We are thankful that you have bound yourself to us in covenant faithfulness and promises. We are thankful that you forgive our sins and our iniquity and our transgressions. And so, Lord, we ask tonight that you would forgive us for the many times that we have put other gods before you, that you would forgive us for the idols of our hearts, that you would forgive us, Lord, for making good things uh, ultimate and therefore sinful idols before you. And we ask together as your people that you would purify our hearts by faith in Christ, that you would fix our eyes again on your son, and that you would help us to live in light of the fact that you and you alone are God, and that we would live our lives before you, not putting other gods before you. And so we do pray that you would help us, and that you would do this for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.